0: So here we are, the next episode of the Outrider podcast, our crime and detective fiction series with Todd and Paul. And this time we're discussing James Elroy's American tabloid and Elmore Leonard's unknown man number 89. I think uh, Paul said you were going to have some bios for us today.
1: We want to talk about Elroy? Sure. Well, I guess we might as well just jump into a little bit of narrative about Elroy he, he was uh, growing up in L.A. and his parents uh, divorced. This is in the 50s. And uh, he uh, wound up living during the week with his mother in El Monte and uh, his dad living in L.A. He was, I believe, 10, maybe 11. I forget. And he went for a weekend with his father. <clears throat> and over that weekend, his mother uh, went out on a date and was murdered. And so he had that experience of being a, a young 10- or 11-year-old coming home and police all around the house, and he mm-hmm. finds out his mother's been murdered. He goes to uh, live with his father in L.A., and his father's situation is you know, pretty marginal. Uh, he's alone a lot. Uh, he's already had this taste in reading, so his dad gives him a book by Jack Webb of Dragnet, a book called The Badge, which uh, goes over some of the famous cases in L.A., Including the Black Dahlia. And most of this that I'm getting is coming from uh, his uh, memoir that he wrote uh, called My Dark Places. My Dark Places. Yeah, i trying to remember what the title is. My Dark Places. <laughs> um, he wrote a memoir about this, and that just seems to me to be the place to start when you're trying to understand Elroy. Okay. Um, there's a really cool documentary about him, too. The director is this guy named uh, Jayanti, and the, the documentary is called. James Elroy's feast of death and I don't know if I'm pulling this from more of the documentary or, or from the memoir I can't remember no. but, but Elroy described being you know 11 year old boy his dad working nights and he's alone in this apartment in LA watching the cars go by and he looks out and he wonders which one of the drivers which one of the men in the car are murderers and how many of the women in the car are murder victims and what in the world sex has to do with any of it And to me, that winds up being uh, the psychic underpinning for all of Elroy's fiction. So that's my little background bio. I mean, I don't know how much we want to get into, but he, he went through a period where he was a petty criminal and lived a pretty marginal existence. He started writing books. He started caddying was the job that sort of pulled him out of poverty and writing books and, and ultimately wrote some successful mystery uh, novels, uh, The Black Dahlia being one of them, which right. is a fictional treatment of that famous murder case. And then when he did uh, L.A. Confidential, which was made into a hugely successful movie, he suddenly sort of jumped into the upper echelon of, of uh, sort of the pub business. Right. And he uh, now uh, self-styles himself the demon dog of American literature,
0: yeah, I read his colorful. little bio thing, and I was like, eh. "It sounds to me like he's compensating." Of course, he'll say that, and he'll show up on your doorstep and beat the shit out of you, or something like that, or pretend to. He, Who knows? I think he's hamming it up. And <laughs> if you watch one of his readings
1: and stuff, he he talks the he talks I don't think the he's job. Very tough, actually. Just to really yes. Well, he's. He's old now. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, if you see, the poor guy's old now, so I don't think he's beating anybody up. But um, he's a writer. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's, inside, we're all just little girls. Wow. <laughs> I, I'm just saying. I don't know he, where that he, came from. He just but, sits back there and works on his prose. <laughs> I remember an interview that was on one of these Sunday arts shows, and this poor young uh, journalist interviewing him who evidently did not know about his shtick. And she asked him some question about his creative process. And he said, uh, I have portraits of 1940s crime scenes on my wall. I like to lie back on my couch and growl like a dog. <laughs> and this poor journalist <laughs> smiled, just fixed on her face, just smiled and went on to the next question. And, but he has a whole act war- act worked up. It's a shtick, yeah, and I think he, he does it and, it. and I bet going to one of his readings is fun, and it's all get out be- right. because of that.
2: I've looked at a couple of those on YouTube, and they do look to be entertaining. It looks to yeah. me like he is sort of an accomplished public speaker. I mean, just from the his delivery. Yes.
1: Yeah, and so um, that's where we're at. He he claims that his latest novel. He 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 tells you that it is. A great work of literature, that he has risen from the ranks of being a pulp writer to being a great literary writer, one of the only writers to ever do that. Something that we could argue about here, I think. Well, uh, I think that's part of the shtick. Then I, yeah. I don't, I don't know that he believes that, but that's what he. And what is that re- most recent book? Do you remember the title? Is it Perfidia? Yes. Yeah, Perfidia, which
2: I haven't read. But yeah. I did read my Dark Places, and I remember
1: thinking it was pretty good. It was a while ago, but. I, I do like his nonfiction. I'm a big fan of his. Uh, there's a collection of short uh, nonfiction, non-crime about crime, nonfiction about crime, that he wrote for Esquire, mm-hmm. and they're collecting in a book called uh, Crime Wave, which has always been kind of one of my favorite. I mean, I, I wrote those short pieces, journalistic pieces, and were, was largely inspired. I didn't quite get as you t- his.
2: In, you could see where his you could see where his prose style would work quite nice in journalism. Yeah. the shorter pieces. Hmm? You know, I, we talked about if we're going to get into tabloid. Yeah. Uh, you know,
0: one of the I don't know where we want to start. Did you have an idea where you wanted to go with well, it? Well, I'm I'm curious because you guys I guess you guys have read more Elroy. This was my first exposure to him. I mean, aside from seeing the movie L.A. Confidential, which I liked, I thought it was a pretty good movie. Um, but having this be my my first exposure to his prose, I was. Not impressed, I don't particularly like why well, I mean I read how he he calls this his telegraph style, and I'm like, it's a little bit too punchy for me, maybe that's just
2: you know my five hundred five hundred and seventy pages worth of punchy right is the, <laughs> the is arguably the the if there's an issue to me, that's it. I'm good with it for a, a while, and then I get a little tired of it,
1: and I have to take a break. Yeah, absolutely, had the same experience.
2: Yeah, it was it was a bit of a slog. Um, Plus, there are so many scenes where we're on these little adventures with is a Bondurant, Bondurant, and Kemper Boyd. Yep, and it's one more little crime spree down in Florida mafioso names are being sprayed all over the page and other people we haven't been introduced to hardly at all yeah and i'm thinking why am i there was a few there were more than a few occasions when i thought why why am i reading this scene
0: what how does this play into the larger narrative right yeah that was a that was there were so many names floating around that mm-hmm. all i wanted to really care about was who. Hey, Whose, whose world am I in now? Am I in Kempers? Am I in Pete's? Am I in um, Littell's? Which one? Just And ready and all the other names are just kind of dismissed because mm-hmm. they came and went, and, and he's covering so much ground in this. What, from 57 to... 63. 63? November of 63. 22. What's that? 63. Um, that's what? I don't do six, math. Seven, six. Radio, six or seven six. years? And it's like... I don't know. I was, I was not expecting it to be, you know, this, this fictionalized imagining of of what led to, uh, to the Kennedy assassination. This is like its own little fictional. It's, it's a novel, obviously. It's a set of fiction, but it's, it's, I don't know if any of this has made its way into or how much of this is, it was inspired by the various, you know, conspiracy theories around the assassination. You know, um, we know the assassination takes place. That's where it leads up to, is that thing. But you know, and we get we get Jack Ruby in there floating around, but Guy Bannister, J.D. Tippett. We don't know where where's Oswald. I mean, if he's he hasn't he didn't have anything to do with it. He was a patsy, right? But they don't. But they talk and they talk about setting up the patsy for it. But they don't. They don't drag his name into the thing, which would, you know, he's been so good, quote, unquote, about dropping, you know, historical names in this, and then we just leave that one out?
1: That's kind of funny. I hadn't thought about it.
2: It is interesting that he doesn't at least mention, that Oswald doesn't at least get mentioned somehow in passing as the plot sort of develops in the back half, or the back third of the book. But I didn't necessarily have a problem with that, so much as just if I've got a if we if we want to address the issue that I raised about reading a chunk of the book and then having to set it aside yeah. for a while and come back to it. What has has occurred? I mean it's not to me just the prose style, which it has some it, it has some things that are pretty good about it. And it it can be quite effective. But so it's that And for me, the other part of it is his rendering of his three primary characters, Mm -hmm. Bondurant, Ward Littell, and Kemper Boyd. And we're with those three players all the way through. And, you know, I don't have to like the characters in a novel. I mean, Macbeth isn't likable either, so we don't have to have that be our requirement. But there has to be something going on. With these people to make them uh, compelling, right? Ward Latell is arguably the one, the one character with whom we see sort of a moral disintegration. Kemper Boyd is already a sociopath. He's an FBI agent, but I don't see how we don't call him a sociopath. He's already a sociopath at the start of the novel. And, and Bondurant, too. But Kemper social. Boyd is. Yeah, I guess he is. Kemper yeah. Boyd beats. He's mean and he beats people up so to yeah. get them to do what he wants them to do. Right. To me, that's a sociopath. Yeah. But. But Ward Latell, uh, where do we pick up enough of his inner life to see the disintegration? We just sort of
0: experience it. Yeah, you don't really get it from. From him, when, when, when Elroy's focalizing through Latell, and we're getting Littell's story, we don't really get it, an idea of, you know, his his moral inner life. We get him, we we get we get the obvious thing, like when he first approaches um, uh, the comedian. Um, yeah, Lenny. Lenny. Lenny we get that we get him struggling to be the bad guy in that situation and also when he approaches Jack Ruby because we that's when he picks up the alcoholism right but aside from that which is like that's this classic you know detective fiction trope if the detective is struggling with some moral thing you just make him drink and you don't get into you know that interior monologue or the interior dialogue and it's like okay so he's He's struggling or you know it's like that one stop in the teamsters bar where they give him a rye and a beer and suddenly he's hooked and it's like okay i'll follow it down and then
2: it's almost as though is elroy trying to suggest and i don't know probably not quite right but boyd is a big bobby kennedy believer at the start of the novel and what happens to him that he gets rejected? Some, one of his ideas or something happens. Bobby Kennedy rejects something that Littell, I
1: don't,
2: it, I don't remember what he... not remember Littell. No, Littell.
1: But yeah, Littell's a big, big Bobby fan. He
2: is, but he turns on him, and I can't yeah. remember why. What happened? There's so well, many the, things that happen.
1: Oh, and that's dis- the disintegration of his FBI career? Because of yeah, the truth, it was
0: tied right? with that, and it's, yeah. it had to do with something that Hoover told him, and so Bobby steps away and, and dumps Littell, who had been doing all this work. Off the books to track down organized crime when it was supposed to be on the on the on the red detail, yeah, so we have the that happening, and yeah, and it's, his, know, it's, his, it's it's his embrace of hate it gets him to sober up, which seems like
2: seems it's like a stretch to make it last in any case.
0: yeah, well, have you read the other
2: the follow- ups? no books okay I did try to i okay, I started the cold Six thousand when it came out whenever it came out and I read some of it and I, I admit I experienced it a little bit the way I experienced this
0: one. I liked it at first and then I got tired of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what, what were the, some of the uh, the things you, you'd said before that there were some things that, that this kind of punchy telegraph style um, was good for and did well, because I have some ideas about what it is that it, that it helps him cover and do well. But then there are other ways where it completely short-circuits everything else.
2: I think the slangy, there are some kind of slangy, witty paragraphs in there. I mean, when he's talking, okay, when he's talk there, you've sort of got this, what is the point of view when you're, it's sort of a collective unconscious point of view, third person, mm-hmm. the, and the various players are sort of collectively speculating in the narrative about who are going to be the sort of the behind-the-scenes cabinet members in JFK's
0: mm-hmm.
2: cabinet. And, you know, Sinatra was a shoe-in for what was it, pimping the Pimp. I mean, there are just some really funny lines in there, and and there's quite a few of them. Yeah. Things like that are quite good, but it somehow it doesn't carry all the way through because it— for me, it's the it's the big adventure scenes mm-hmm. that kind of go off the rails, where you're getting all these players and things sprayed all over the page, and there's this big s- scatter thing going on with people getting shot and all this stuff happening, right. and it's just it's like I'm at a movie and I'm in the I'm too close to the screen or something, <laughs> and I can't even I can't
0: I just need to go out
2: in the hallway for a little while.
0: Yeah. yeah two things with the the telegraph style that stood out for me one i think you're right it does handle some things very well and the thing i think it handles really well is is the violence there's no there's no extraneous choreography there's no um you know trying to be poetic or graceful or, or there's no drive to be cinematic yeah. about it he you know with that punchy telegraph style, it's just very straightforward and shocking even, which is what yeah. violence should be. He walks up, he shoots the guy in the face, oh, and it's yeah. put out that simply. And so you're kind of like, ooh. And so you have that, and that. So I think that it handles violence very well. Interesting point. But, it, but I don't think that the telegraph style, I and mean, we talked about this with Ward-Littell's dissent, you know, it doesn't handle that emotional nuance very well. No, it doesn't. And then the other thing about his telegraph style, or maybe this isn't really part of his telegraph style, maybe this is part of his style in general that disturbed me, was that when you had the characters in dialogue, they very rarely, the characters themselves, use racial slurs. Their, their slurs and their comments to people are rather kind of benign. But when you drop into the narrator, the guy that's this this third person controlling consciousness that's, that, that's filtering their information, that's the the racist son of a bitch who's just popping off, you know, spicks niggers, everything just, bleh, and it's like, really? Did Is that necessary? Why don't you put that in the mouths of the characters to get the milieu rather than you, the narrator, doing it? And to me, I didn't see the point behind it. But I guess that's part of it's my a philosophical difference that I have with whatever Elroy's thinking about here is that me as the writer, as a, as a, removed narrator, an idealized narrator and a, a um, the, the, person, the the implied author, the, yeah. the imagined person that he thinks he is that's telling the story. Apparently, for James Elroy, it's a racist asshole doing it. <laughs> that's kind of what
1: I get from it, but go ahead, Paul. Well, what what are we reading here? Well, he sort of tells us in the preface. In fact, you really, you could just read the preface and not read the book, I think.
0: I'm just kidding, but did this I is, miss the preface in my... Well, I don't
1: know. It's, it's the, his little... America was never innocent. We popped our cherry on the boat over and looked back with no regrets. That's my <laughs> best Elroy. <laughs> I'm good at that. Can I just do the whole podcast
0: in my Elroy voice?
1: Yeah, do your Elroy voice and no, I'm, read that whole thing point.
0: for us. No, do I have to? That's no, horrible. you don't have to. But give me the... Where's no. the... Where's oh, it's the,
1: on page... you got the same edition I do. It's on page zero. There's no page number. Yeah.
0: It's before part one. I think I just missed it. Oh. Yeah. Well, let me, let's let's take a look and, and read it so that I'm up to speed here. America was never innocent. We popped our cherry on the boat over and looked back with no regrets. You can't ascribe our fall from grace to any single event or set of circumstances. You can't lose what you lacked at conception. Mass market nostalgia gets you hopped up for a past that never existed. Hagiography sanctifies, shuck and jive politicians and readmits their Expedient gestures as moments of great moral weight. Our continuing narrative line is blurred past truth and hindsight. Only a reckless verisimilitude can set that line straight. The real trinity of Camelot was look good, kick ass, get laid. Jack Kennedy was the mythological front man for a particularly juicy slice of our history. He talked a slick line and wore a world class haircut. I never really thought Kennedy's haircut was that great. I don't understand why. A lot of other people are pretty smitten with it. I don't know. He was Bill Clinton minus pervasive media scrutiny and a few rolls of flab. (laughs) Jack got whacked at the optimum moment to assure his sainthood. Lies continue to swirl around his eternal flame. It's time to dislodge his urn and cast light on a few men who attended his ascent and facilitated his fall. They were rogue cops and shakedown artists. They were wiretappers and soldiers of fortune and faggot lounge. And and there you go. There's that. You're right. It's him. It's 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 the narrative. Had one second of their lives deviated off course, American history would not exist as we know it. It's time to demythologize an era and build a new myth from the gutter to the stars. It's time to embrace bad men and the price they paid to secretly define their time. Here's to them. Interesting
2: that he uses the word embrace
0: right there. And right there, that, I don't know what tone he's going for with that, but it, it, yeah. I mean, you know, so, so Pete Bondrat is obviously at some point, you know, sympathetic to the racist cause, but even your clan character doesn't, I don't recall him in his dialogue for that clan character using Racial epithets they're just all in the narrator's voice. I, I think the narrator is this new
1: myth, and he admires, this narrative voice admires Bondurant, this, and admires these men as much as I, I think we have questions about them.
0: Right. And But he doesn't I, let them have their own vocabulary. He, he takes that for himself and leaves he, them with... I no, but I think that I think
1: that this myth is a is a racist um, ethnocentric or is he playing quasi fascist myth? I think is this he? is a qua- this we're reading quasi fascist myth. I just coined the term. Well that <laughs>
2: what you just read and the voice you read it in was interesting. And Paul was <laughs> Paul was on that trip too. But it's it's no it's a valid reading and let's remember American tabloid is the title. That's right So there's a tabloid uh, element to the prose style here. Right. Elroy's right. working that in.
1: Yeah. It's part of the fabric. The funny thing I thought of when I was thinking about this was that where have I heard this all? This notion of an alternative myth before? Mm-hmm. And, and it came to mind, something that may seem sort of ridiculously obvious to compare this to, but Oliver Stone's film, JFK. Right. Oliver Stone said, I'm trying to create an alternative myth. And I think his alternative myth is sort of the alternative myth of the left, that if we if we look at our history, mm-hmm. we see dark forces within our own country overthrowing the best intent of American liberalism. Jack Kennedy in Elroy's point of view, he has the alternative myth of the right, which is these men who, to use his term men with a hard on for life, mm-hmm. these tough men. That go out and beat up commies and gay people are the ones that shaped this nation and made it the way it is. And what we're seeing here is we're seeing a dethroning of Kennedy as a positive figure and an establishment of these types of men as the true, the true um, unsung heroes. What's yeah. Inter- what,
2: yeah? What I found to be interesting, though, in spite of Elroy's best efforts. I mean, he goes out of his way to, to mythologize, demythologize. What's the word I want? Kennedy's crank. Yeah. And the size of it. Elroy is almost <laughs> obsessed with it. The narrator is obsessed with the size of Kennedy's crank
0: and his, and his, and his stamina in the sack. Yeah. Right. I think Elroy yet hates JFK
1: and Bill Clinton with an insane. By if we go into Show Don't Tell.
2: In spite of Elroy's efforts, Kennedy ends up being one of probably the least manipulative character in the novel. Who does Kennedy really try to get any get them to do anything? Really? Yeah. I mean, even when he's with one of the, the uh, plants, one of the women in the that they've right. trotted into his realm, which they know he's going to go for it. I mean, even in Elroy's portrayals, Kennedy's basically pretty nice.
0: He's he's a pretty nice guy. Yeah, he's he's pretty benign, and, and he's fairly benign. I mean, okay, Kemper boy. I mean, the real bad guy in the Kennedy clan is he makes out as being Joe, right? You know, with and yet he the 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 ultimate hero. of The book is Ward Latell who becomes a mob figure. And so it's like, well, he's got this weird thing. It's like, if you, if you, if you take your mob connections and go left, you're bad. If you take your mob connections and go right, you're good.
2: Well, and fuck? Elroy seems yeah. to want us, Elroy seems to want us to go along with the perception of some of the characters that uh, JFK should have followed the, Bay of Pigs fiasco with a military intervention Mm -hmm. and gone in and you know it's like he left I mean Elroy (laughs) seemed to think that was a he he lacked the courage to go in there it's the right wing perspective of that whole event or one one perspective or uh, Kennedy didn't have enough sack to just face down Khrushchev at Cuba he had to give up those missiles over in Turkey on the side Mm -hmm. if he'd been a real man with a real big crank, he would have just forced down Khrushchev and got him to put take the missiles out of there.
1: I mean, that's sort of the narrative yeah. that's being floated in this novel. Yeah. But I think I think he hates JFK at an even more fundamental level. And it's a level I've never really been able quite to understand. Because if if JFK's a womanizer with a good haircut you could see somebody objecting to him for some sort of moral grounds for how he mm-hmm. treats women, and yet there's no indication in any of the characters, the, you know, the lead characters in Elroy's own shtick, the narrator's shtick, th- that that's somehow a bad thing. I mean, other people womanize, and it's okay, but when JFK right. does it, and Bill Clinton does it, it's horrible, and he hates them. I mm-hmm. don't understand that. To this day, I can't. And I've listened to, yeah, some interviews with this guy and read some of his nonfiction, and I, I don't totally appreciate what it is other than like i said it's sort of this weird
0: right-wing mythologizing of the world no dan savage often says it's it's the republican idea that you screw as i say not as i screw that's
1: there's something (laughs) going on there there's something about the kind don't forget the little boy who, who, who who hated his mother but his mother was murdered and he stands there at 11 years old with this jack webb book and tries to put it all together. And in many ways, I think Elroy is still that little boy. I just mm. I think there's some some serious uh serious uh trauma very, very deep that that filters up in this perspective somehow. Yeah.
2: If there's a plot point in this book that I found, I mean, okay, we could argue about it forever. <laughs> I mean, because it's a little we could argue about the plot points, I'm sure, various plot points. The one that I just I'll be honest, I just didn't buy it particularly, was the uh, introduction of Kemper Boyd into the Kennedy inner circle by Hoover. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, okay, I've read a couple of JFK biographies, and the, the one thing you pick up about JFK and the Kennedys mm-hmm. is that you didn't really penetrate the circle. Right. They, he had his friends that went back to Harvard, or they were Bobby's friends from Harvard, or they were people that, they had their little circle, or they even had a group called the Irish Mafia. They were JFK's old buddies or his friends of his dad. Right. And that was the crowd. And actually, those were the people who JFK uh, sort of had him, especially after he became president and couldn't go flirt as much as he wanted to. They kinda of set him up, you know, with his dates. Right. It was he still ir- flirted more than I do and he when... would not have been using an
1: FBI guy. <laughs> you know, you know, cut you know down to like He would week not so. have been
2: using Kemper Boyd to get that done. Yeah. But and okay, and then they question I mean Elroy covers it to a certain extent because he has the old man say, you know, the old man's half convinced Hoover sent Kemper over to spy on him. And Bobby brings it up at one point, and then Jack actually asked Kemper about it. He asks him about it. Right. And Kemper's explanation is pretty insufficient. He kind of tries to get, up, get around it, and Jack just kind of buys it. Right. Which probably has to happen for the narrative to work. But yeah. I found it... I, if there was something that I just kind of didn't really buy, I suppose that's it.
0: Yeah. I don't know that much about, you know... Kennedy at his personal life. I've never been much for political biographies. So, I'm going to I'm going to trust your take on it.
2: Well, put After it like I'm, this, they didn't trust Hoover because they well, knew yeah. Hoover already had a file on Jack yeah. in World War II. Yeah. Hoover had a file on him then. Well, because
0: yeah. Yeah, Hoover God, I mean, we could go on I mean, I just So I,
1: anybody from the FBI they didn't trust. I can just yeah, but well, but again, back to the idea of, of like, Oliver Stone in his movie, mm-hmm. people have pointed out so many things about it that are historically factually inaccurate. And his sense is, I'm myth-making here. Right. So same thing should be true here. The question, though, is are you objecting to that because you know real facts about what the Kennedys were like, or are you objecting to it in the, the world of the book? You're, I think you're also sort of saying that the world of the book doesn't really sell it either. So wh- no matter what we know about the Kennedys... The idea that Kemper Boy does this infiltration, even just within the universe of the book, is 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 a sort of a weak plot point. I didn't buy Kemper's explanation um, to to Jack or Bobby either one
0: about him taking the early retirement and then
1: right. What about the southern accent though? Doesn't that just automatically sell you on anybody if they have a southern accent? You're like, oh, cool, come on board.
0: <laughs> oh sure. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> that probably wasn't a good point to make, sorry. Yeah. Well, you know.
2: That said, it's, it's a pretty ambitious book. Yeah,
0: well, yeah, no, that's, you gotta hand it to him that. I mean, to try and, you know, weave in something that believably could in some way be somewhat conceivable. It's, it's not...
2: By page 350 of a 570-page book, I don't know that I felt That interested in Latell Boyd or Bondurant? I don't know that I was that interested in any of those characters.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. No, I was. Sorry. Well, no, it's just okay. Ward, we see that Latell is on his moral decline. Mm -hmm. I just wish I cared a little more about him as a character. I mean, one way or another, he's got to be. I don't. I'm not saying he's got to be. I've already said it. He does not have to be a likable character. Right. Just doesn't.
1: He needs to be interesting. He needs to be interesting. And I yeah. wasn't getting there. I think it's that myth idea again, where these characters are men with hard-ons for life, and we don't really need to know that much about them. We need to know what the real American story is. And so I, I just, you know, I think if I'm I'm guessing why it works that way is because we, yeah. he's not that concerned with that. He's more concerned with the history, and you talked about all the names that just drop in right. there, and I think a lot of that is just to drop in. Jack Ruby and names that we know. Right. Because he's trying to weave this fabric of American history de Kennedyized,
0: Right. Well, I get... Okay. On one hand, I agree with Todd, is that, you know, you don't have to like a character, but you have to have some investment in whether or not they succeed or fail. You have to be like, well, what how is this guy going to... Why am I, you know... I want to find out what this fucker does for one reason or another, because either... I, I'm invested in them succeeding, or I'm invested in them failing. Yeah. Something, you have to have something in there. And I was like, going, I don't yeah. really give a shit what these three guys yes. do. Yeah. And then, but to your point, also, I think you know, this thing about Elroy being myth making and trying to give this this alternate myth of, of the Kennedy assassination. By the end of the book, I wasn't given a shit about Ward or whatever. I was like, going, how does he, and Mike, but my curiosity wasn't anything about you know, history or the myth, it was more kind of like, okay, so how's he going to pull this off? How's he going to work these three characters into the history that I know? And that's to me is kind of a weak reason to read a book. Yeah.
2: What about all the transcripts and, and memos between Hoover and yeah. Boyd
1: and he did a pretty good job on those,
0: but I don't know. It's, to a, what it's, end, it's but... a neat trick, yeah, yeah. you know, to kind of bridge a lot of narrative time. And to give you this idea that somehow you are being brought into the secret world, you're getting a, a peek at, at top secret information, that's really all about it. it is, it's it's a, it's a device for um, perception and, and jumping time. It does jump time. But I don't know that it's, 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 a, it's a neat trick, but I, it's not the thing that stood out for me. It starts to go on. It's kind of like some of the other things in the book. I guess he needs that time in order to make it believable that, you know, Boyd, you know, does finagle his way into some political inner sanctum and then finagles his way into the CIA. And somehow he's, you know, involved in in every single ongoing thing that's big in the late 50s, early 60s. It's Mm. like, really, is there can I go through, um, you know, some historical thingamajigger and actually see an individual who? was somehow tied to all three of these organizations, the FBI, Kennedy, and the CIA? Can I find somebody in real life who is, you know, is there somebody that that did that or something like that who was like a prototype, kind of like how, you know, you know when you read the English patient, you know, Laszlo Almashe was a real person who did something similar to, you know, crossing the desert in the middle of the war, but all the other the rest of that story is entirely made up. He never had an affair with Catherine Clifton, who also was apparently a real person and part of the Royal Geographical Society. There was no known historical connection between these two, but they except for them being in the desert prior to World War II. I mean, is that is there somebody who fits that type of A little bit. I think there's there's one guy in particular who, who who some people have said is is a little
1: bit of a little bit of Kemper Boyd and a little bit of of Littell, Okay. I think. I mean, there's supposed to be some sort of historical analog that that uh, uh inspired okay, the characters in some way, but it's I mean yeah, it's pretty loose it's I wouldn't go too far with that why do you know do you know of some other
2: no the only I was going to say i don't I don't know about the sort of the ward latell level of any of those agencies. My perception has always been that they the agencies are somewhat suspicious of one another, yeah, they kind of guard their own territory huh? so I don't. In my mind, I suppose I would think it would be hard to sort of penetrate one from the other. But then I just don't know. Right? We know that at the executive level, people do walk the path between the various agencies. Right. That's kind of a different
1: realm. Well, the question should be, does the book create a world where it's plausible, more so than what we know about history? Even, you know, because is he telling the story to make you buy it? If he's telling the story, well, you ought to buy that. You ought to not ask the
0: question. Yeah. And to me, it would seem that, you know, if you have the FBI, which was big to spying on everybody in the country and getting a file on anybody that that uh, Hoover thought was suspicious, and then you have the CIA, which I think this was in a time before they were really barred from operating in the states. And in fact, the whole big point about the, uh, the Bay of Pigs thing is that the CIA is operating in the states. Wouldn't those spooks also know who their FBI agents were? So why wouldn't somebody – and the and one it,
2: thing, the one thing Elroy has right here is the very rogue element from what I can just from the reading I've done on the '50s CIA, right. there was a much heavier kind of rogue element in those I mean it was a new agency mm-hmm. that had spooled out from the OSS, right And the, it was the the politicians and executive level hadn't really thought it all the way through mm-hmm. in my mind. And the rogue element, I believe, was worse in the '50s than it's ever been since. Yeah, so that part I think Elroy might have right. Just the idea that we had some of these people out operating a little bit more on their own.
0: But then so if I guess yeah, I,
2: we know they what, ran the psychedelic
0: experiments for right, example. Right. So and that's the kind of thing that throws and I think this adds into your concern about Boyd suddenly getting into the Kennedy clan is that would not somebody have been able to uncover Kemper Boyd between 57 and 63 as this like triple agent somebody could have figured that out and put the kibosh on it and yet he gets to go pretty much all the way through until Littell decides to put a bullet in him I mean it's, it's, it's a fictional a,
2: narrative that if it's like anything else you've got to decide if you're going to suspend your disbelief right. at what I point, suppose
0: yeah, at what level of suspended disbelief are you going to sign off and go okay I take it I got it I get it me I'm you do and I've already expressed my reservation with that one
2: <laughs> certainly with that one element but yeah. it's not a cut and dried
0: perception it's just kind of where I went with it oh no I understand yeah I do find that that if there are things that make me dislike a book my ability to spin suspend, suspend disbelief erodes as I go through it and and the thing that makes me dislike it doesn't necessarily have to be the thing that ultimately is related to my.
2: I feel like he just missed a, missed a chance just a bit with these characters. I mean, mean, okay. Macbeth or Hamlet or I'm picking Shakespeare because you get these characters that, that, and you sort of overhear the moral decline. Right. I mean, you, you see it, you see it, it's, it's dramatized. And so you get the back and forth and the things that go on in the mind of the character. And I don't feel like we get that with these people. Mm -hmm. And so we don't, we're not invested in it. Right. Just seeing Pete Bondurant go be mean to somebody doesn't make me care about him.
0: Yep. Right. Or suddenly fall in love with that singer. It's like, okay. And apparently they have earth-shaking sex and he ejaculates on a mattress, but right (laughs) i'm like going (laughs) okay well maybe maybe you should spend more time chasing women instead of beating people up and killing people you know and doping up who uh hughes howard hughes just you know have a life dude come on
1: (laughs) i I think a lot of times in elroy you have a character who's uh having sex with a woman or murdering another man it's pretty much the same thing really I, i think i think there's a there's a level there again where that 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 figure that he uh idolizes this notion of the man of action Mm -hmm. going out there and, and kicking ass and taking names and taking charge of women and running their lives. And if anybody gets in the way, he, you know, does violence against them. I I think that's what that's supposed to represent. And I, so I think, yeah, we're getting this new myth where these heroes, these new kinds of heroes romp across the American, the landscape of the American history Mm -hmm. and sort of set the record straight about what America is all about. And I just thought I just thought reading it, you know, you don't you can't read a book without context. I mean right. your own personal context. And um, I had tried the Cold Six thousand before. I don't know if I picked this up before. So it'd be interesting if I had. But reading it now, I just found the, the experience really, really chilling. Mm-hmm. Because essentially it's this perspective, these kind of men who control the country now. Yeah. And this is kind of, in a way, uh, what we're looking at. And so, I, yeah, I, I think it's it's uh, the literary merits and the the issues about how he do, what he does with the plot are are viable literary questions to be asked. But I didn't stop to think about a lot of them because I was just too mortified thinking about well what okay. this says about our, our the world around <laughs> us.
0: Well, and it's so more. you're more concerned about the reflective quality of the of the book. Well, we're back. Um, we're almost back to Elroy going to therapy for <laughs> Elroy's cause it uh,
1: just bothered me so much.
0: We're almost
2: back to his opening salvo. I don't know why you read salvo. just
1: read that, and you're, you've got the idea. And to me, the, well, and most of the questions you're asking are answered right there. He's not. He's not telling a, a novel with an. In- well, what's fascinating about his opening salvo and where he goes with the novel?
2: He's sort of opening with this contention. I'm sketching in the real complexity here, right? But it's not very complex. It's (laughs) it's not that (laughs) complex. Everybody in this thing is just nasty, Uh right? Uh Even if they're not nasty, they're nasty. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that's the complexity. And you know his whole thing that America was this or that. Well, America is a big complex place and always has been. And I mean, so I just can't. You just
1: can't go to where. I think I, can't go he, I think you've hit vision. on it in a way. I, mean, I think you've hit on it. Yeah. That, that that essentially we have this he would say we have this over I don't know what he would say. I, my guess is that we have this over-romanticized history book understanding of America, JFK, great man, and America struggling with these moral issues. Mm-hmm. And no, it's none of that. It is big guys like Pete beating the snot out of a little wimpy guys like me. So I took it personal. You definitely would not want to be
2: someone that Pete Bondurant or Kemper Boyd is, has decided to shake down or manipulate. Right,
0: right. You know, nobody wants to be that. I'd talk them out of it. They're
2: very they're nasty, those yeah. two guys. No,
0: you don't want to hang out with them. I don't really want to hang out with Ward Littell either. But No, you I don't. Yeah, yeah. Because he's also got that, that religious quality to him that i'm not particularly fond of either so what you're saying then is that is that elroy thinks that is is kind of tapping into into this thing that we see going on now where people are 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 being nostalgia for an america that never was and what he's saying is okay here's america how it really was but that vision's not any better than the than the pie in the sky, white picket fence. It's like the complete opposite. It's like the nightmare version. Yeah. You have you have the, the, you have the fluffy, sanitized why can't we, you know, go back to the America like it was when I was a kid. And then you have his, which is like this nightmare you know, version. And where's the, the truth is somewhere in between that. Of course it is. You've still got your
2: Americans that, you know, on a completely different arc than anyone in this novel. Yeah, but aren't you just
1: a <laughs> little bit scared that maybe he's got it right? and maybe that's why we're we're at where we're at now is that America has always been oriented toward fascism and that's where we're winding up where we've always been heading
0: right i i, I there there's always been a latent quality of fascism i mean you didn't you would not have had we we came up with eugenics in America and that's what inspired the uh, you know the Nazi final solution so it's not like we're we're not um Free of of guilt, and we're not we're not free of our own inclinations towards towards fascism.
2: So it's like our economy in a way. I mean, we have a complicated economy. It's not, it's not a purely capitalistic society, uh, economy, right? But it's not a totally socialistic economy either. It's a mixture of those things, right? And uh, America itself is is like that. And I mean, we, it's, sure, it's got. I don't argue that there are people out there like Kemper Boyd and Bondurant. It just seems that in this novel, Elroy's almost trying to say, this is it, this is
0: what you Mm -hmm. get. Yeah, there's there's everybody else, and then there's these people that control the world. Either it's the Joe Kennedys who are secretly corrupt, or it's the outwardly corrupt people that at least, you know, are are trying to help out the guy that were were screwed by, you know, the beard. and, And, well, you know... You know, aside from aside from the, the, the fascists and the fascist sympathizers, most everybody wants to punch a Nazi. So and so. And, in, and in this, anybody that would want to punch a Nazi isn't strong enough to get past these two guys, these two freaking, you know, six foot five gorillas. Right? right. And the only one who does, Ward, does it by being underhanded and, and sneaky and manipulative. Just Wonder what his ultimate opinion, and it would be interesting. To uh, read the uh, other books, or at least get, grab the cliff notes and get a synopsis of it, I don't think it could sit through another 500 pages of this writing style. The
1: opening of Colt 6000 really got me because of the the setting in Dallas, which is such a such a mythologized space in American mm-hmm. history.
2: Remind and me, does he pick up with Oswald at least in that narrative? Yeah, as I think a, Oswald's running away,
1: and J.D. Tippett shows up again, and and but there's a new character, Tedrow Wayne Tedro. Yeah, but that one sent to. Clean things up who's settling things doubt. up well, I think he's there yeah. for another reason and I, think, I don't remember the and point is Latell and are in that
0: too yes yes,
1: yes. Not Kemper Boyd because he he's dead he didn't make it thank God but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right when it's very to me
2: it's suggestive of the success of the book and again I'm not completely criticizing the novel because it has some some things about it mm-hmm. but when Latell approaches Kemper Boyd at the end of this narrative, and puts a bullet in him. Right. I just, I, I read it, and it. I don't know if it had the effect that Elroy thought it was going to have on me, but the effect was just kind of like, okay, yeah. Boyd's
0: dead, and Latell <laughs> shot him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Next. Yeah. yeah. Next. Yeah. I, I think he wanted it to be shocking, especially since he starts off the book with Kemper as if he's, mm-hmm. you know, the you know, the focalizing hero of the whole thing, but it wasn't
2: shocking because Kemper was mean to Latell early in the book. I mean, he needlessly beat him up to kind of punk him down and get him to do what he wanted him to do. Right. So it's not that surprising.
0: And then abandon him, and you know, or shocking, yeah. yeah, yeah. Anybody, anything else on on Elroy?
2: No, I think we've pretty well.
0: All right. <clears throat> He lived in Kansas City for a while. That is true of a lot of people.
1: I'm just trying to think a good <laughs> no I, I don't have negative uh, thoughts against James Elroy the person, in a way. I mean, I don't know the guy, but I'm saying, not at no all. Reason, but we, I think his his book is terrifying. Okay, so we're done with it, though. Yes, nightmare is over. Tell more, Leonard. They may do a bio, and I don't. think I, I didn't. I, Nobody did. I.
2: I could sketch in a couple items on him. I don't know how much we wanted to go into his bio anyway, but just, I suppose, the two points that that I thought to bring up were just that um, I think he really got going on his, he published a couple of novels fairly early on in his career. He was working as a copywriter in an ad agency. And got started in Westerns, right? I think that's the case. Yep. And that movie, *Hombre*, starring Paul mm-hmm. Newman would be an example of one of his, uh, his stories. One of, yeah, it is, yes. And then uh, he got going again, I think, in the 70s when he was maybe in his late 40s, somewhere in there, which is not too long before he published Unknown Man, number 89, which yep. we're getting ready to talk about. Uh, the other two things just that uh I did read a piece about Leonard and the New Yorker at one point where when he was living in Florida, for example, and he was writing about Detroit as he did in this book, he might he had this guy that went around and did his research, field research for him. Yes, yeah. he would send a guy out to do look find stuff and things that might flow into this narrative that he was working on, which is which is an interesting approach because how do you know that your guy is going to come up with the stuff that you'll need?
0: I mean, right. I can't imagine trying to do it myself. Well, maybe he had the uh, the the plot idea or the concept, and sent the guy to look at at ex- certain things. I would see right. Like the... And this particular guy obviously did a good job on it. But
2: uh, oh, and the other thing I sort of liked about Leonard was just that he. I think he worked on a. He wrote his novels on a legal pad or he would write it out longhand and then type it out on his old typewriter. And he was always into the whole manual typewriter yeah. carriage return thing. <laughs> he liked that ring. I've sort of, a, I do a kind of admire that. And I mean, so many great novels before the age of the computer, you know, think about it for a minute. You guys have all written full length narratives yeah. and you get to page 186 and you find out that something back on page thirty seven has to change now. And when you've got your program, you just go splice in the change and move on. But with a type manuscript, you've got a real mess to go clean up. Yeah. I don't know how they do it, but anyway, Leonard did
1: work that way, I think, his whole career.
0: A lot of a lot of pens and pencil marks and notes and then retyping and retyping and retyping. If
1: you could afford that guy to do the research, why couldn't he afford a typist? Maybe he did after a while.
2: Um, I think it's more that he just found a way that worked and he was
1: not going to change it. Well, a retypist if he had to change it even.
2: Oh, he want he worked
1: around it.: He thought something was wrong, so he just wrote his way out of the problem. Rather than going back into the page three and fix or it?: No, maybe. I
2: think he had to retype
1: it. Oh, okay. I
2: think his okay. daughter helped him. I think his daughter helped him with the typing part. Or maybe he was a more pl- meticulous plotter than any of us are. That's just it the question I have. That's that's really part of the question I have, and how much rewriting and yeah, did he do? I don't. You just wonder. Other than that, I didn't go into his personal. You know, I didn't. I don't know if somebody could add something.
1: I don't. Maybe a, a good segue into the book would be just to me. I thought that the '70s were really vibrantly came alive here for some reason, and I have a real hard time necessarily pointing to what it is. I was a little kid. Yeah, but this this time period seemed to me to be be very alive in the book. So agreed,
0: may have been that's just when it was written and published. Yeah, it was. It helps, and but it, it, maybe very, that, yeah, being, yeah maybe that's what very, it is. Being yeah. very
1: in the moment of it, of that he he, but he he had the kind of detail in there that really made me sort of revisit my uh, somewhat sketchy memories of, <laughs>
2: of time. What about? Because you've gotten on me about this before, starting off well, starting off on a narrative and kind of being in in summary mode rather than starting with a scene. Yeah. So, what did you make of sort
1: of this first chapter that kind of summarizes Ryan's background? It's interesting it work? because um, I don't know. I want to say if it works or not, but it's it's interesting because the book's really cinematic, right? And, uh, you know, I'm sure you'll want to talk about the technique where he, he, his point of view shifts from one, you know, from following Ryan to other characters, which is, again, like a movie, mm-hmm. pretty common in a movie. Yeah. So I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it. But that that is like maybe this is like maybe the only literary portion of the book and the rest of the book is is scenes. More, it wants to be a movie script to me rather than a novel. Um, mm-hmm. but, the, but this sort of summary is obviously authorial voice giving us the background. Right. Which theoretically is a weak way to start a novel. Did he do it and make it interesting?
0: Did you want? I to- I didn't have any problems with the opening. I mean, it's with with our previous book here today that w- which is more kind of political espionage, you know, spy intrigue type of thing. This gets right back to kind of what I was expecting to be a a traditional classic crime book, and which means you. It's it is centered on the on the criminal aspect, you know. It's you do have the he's, he's playing the role of a pseudo detective, and you kind of need that setup to show him being becoming a process server, which is his form of being a detective. He's good at hunting down people, right? So you kind of need that background for the rest of the the scenes and the plotting to take to to be comprehensible. And you know how do you show that? And, and keep it, you know, as, as short as a novel as this was. And that's, how do you, so you make that, and he doesn't actually do a whole, he doesn't yeah, do a, um, his well, telling yeah. is interspersed at times with some dialogue, so you do get that sense that you drop, even if it's just a moment, he drops out of the narrative thing into, point. A, into a micro scene, yeah, and micro that, gives you that, that gives you that sense that you're not being given this, just this wall of text, a, a, a traditional info dump. If you
1: will, of, of just uh, once upon a time narrator. Once upon right. a time, there was so and so. Here's all the basic facts you need. Okay, now let's start our story.
2: It's, it's more also, going on than that. It also has a nice little circular element to it because you get in, you find out about the car that Ryan picked up yeah. with the bullet holes in the door. Yeah. And then it circles back to that with that nice little, nice little ending to the chapter. I re- I really like the way he pulled that off. <laughs> if I can get to it. Let me see. There weren't many
1: cars around with four bullet holes in the door.
2: Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the three years, he'd put 83,000 miles on the Cougar and traded it in on a Pontiac Catalina two door light blue with air and heavy duty shocks, 4658 delivered. He was glad to finally get rid of the Cougar, though he'd still think about it every once in a while. There weren't many cars around with four bullet holes in the
0: door. <laughs> You know what makes me sad? He bought a brand new car for $4,658. <laughs> that may
1: be what, when I say the time period is coming through, it maybe details like that that just you're like, wow. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. It's like, fuck you and your fucking boomer adolescence, you know? <laughs> <There> you <laughs> you're, sorry, boomer adulthood.
2: So what, if, what about Ryan, then? He's clearly the, the protagonist of this thing, and... We talked about it in tabloid that not only do we not like anyone in that damn thing, but don't necessarily even get very invested in what they're doing. Right. What about where's Ryan? I mean, how did you experience Ryan as a character?
0: I don't know that I necessarily would have liked him, but at least I, I when it got to the point where he was where his life was actually in jeopardy. I was like, oh, come on. You know, how do you get out of this? get out of it because I didn't want to see, it wouldn't make no sense for him to die or get horribly hurt and so yeah I mean that was the thing you know you you followed his emotional arc you kind of
2: where does he fit on on the sort of the literary hero anti-hero is he an anti-hero he's he's a very typical Elmore Leonard protagonist by the way he sort of operates in a yeah. moral gray area he's not a he's not an evil person like the characters in tabloid at right. all. He's not a murderer, but he'll, he will look after number one from time to time. Right. Like he wants that. Does he want that money? What is he doing with that? It's, it's Denise's money, but he's a little bit deceitful with her at various points. Right. It's just kind of gray. He's a, he seems real.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, up until he drags her off to Florida you kind of think oh, he's in it for the money he's not and then he just drags her off to Florida and after that you don't realize he's not in the money he's not in it for the money for himself right. but he thinks she should want it maybe, he's, maybe, that's, a, maybe that's the little trick of, of us not thinking he's a total asshole is that he's, he's actually transferring his desire for the money onto her and it's when she finally says I don't really give a shit that he backs off because,
2: you know. But by then, it's almost become a contest between him and Perez. Yeah. 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 It's just Perez is kind of, it's become a battle between those two, and somebody's got to win.
0: Yeah. I think it's 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 a conflict of gray areas because Perez is not really a bad guy, but he's obviously doing something underhanded and his and his percentage. He's sharing, pretty ruthless. though. I was say, not a bad guy. He's uh, pretty ruthless. Willing to yeah. have people well, killed. He's got, his, he's got his muscle to do that for him. But like he's like he says a lot of times in in when he's talking to Ryan is you know when they almost threw Jay Wald out the window. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, yeah, he's he is he is he's presenting. He, it's it's a semi legitimate scam, and his <laughs> his sin is 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 that fifty percent finder's fee, right? Come on, you know. I mean, if he didn't have the muscle, and no. he didn't, and he did like a a forty or a thirty percent finder's fee, eh, he might be the good guy in the book. But he's obviously pulling the wool over somebody's. He's doing something legitimate so that nobody out there in law enforcement can stop him fight for it. I
2: suppose the 50% finder's fee makes him, he's operating at the level of a con man to a certain extent. Right, right. But he crosses, but the point with Perez, where I get off with him as being a even a gray area guy is that there's a point where a character... Can either back off, they realize they're not going to get what they want, mm-hmm. and they say, Well, I guess I'm not going to get what I want. I'm go have a, a beer and forget about it. Right. Of course, you don't put people like that in novels, especially crime novels. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, Perez, he's not going to get what he wants, so he's going to make sure he gets what he wants. He's going to send Gidry in to get right. it, and Gidry is going to do whatever has to be done including shoot somebody. So, yeah. So that's the difference with me and per- Perez is on a different level for me than Ryan. Right. Ryan is, he's, he's uh, more benign than that. Yeah. Definitely. But what about the, are we ready to move? Yeah. What about the, to me, the strength one of the strength of this book are the, are the bit player characters. Virgil Royal, Mm -hmm. Tuna Fish, you already mentioned Perez and Guidry, Um, Rita, J. Walt. There's a whole little network of bit player characters that I thought were pretty well drawn. Yeah. And, I mean, Virgil Royal is... Dick Speed. And Dick Mm. Speed. (laughs) Virgil, for me, is particularly fun. He's just fun. When he's on the page, I know he's a crook and a criminal, but when he, when he strolls onto the page, I'm entertained. Right. Everything he does is entertaining.
0: Even die. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> right, because he's questioning his strategy. Right. Right. Yeah. He was impatient, yeah. which is one of the I mean, themes he of the book. Right, Way yeah. back in the beginning of the book. Of, yeah, he had the, a prompt. He's, he, Leonard opens the book with the epigraph. A prompt man is a lonely man. Patience is one of the real themes of the yeah. Recurring themes of the book. Right. And then, Virg, poor Vir, I shouldn't say poor Virgil, but he's got it all figured <laughs> out.
0: And he ends up being too patient. Right. Yeah. Although, poor Tuna Fish, man, he didn't deserve to die. Tuna Fish, wasn't Tuna Fish is he's just, just, he's just the brother in law. Yeah. yeah, but he didn't deserve to die, man. God. Tuna I'm, Fish is just the brother in law. And he's got Virgil. Yeah. Yeah, Virgil got him killed. That's for sure.
1: <laughs> Jeez. One you know, of the interesting things for me was that sort of the way that. Crime novels have to balance this sort of moral notion that the there's this uh, dark world where these crooks live, uh-huh. and that's bad. And yet, we read about it, it's damned interesting and fun. And like you said, Virgil Crook, oh, but man, he's fun fun to pay attention to. It's really, yeah, I think it's Virgil, I'm not getting this confused. But when, when uh, Virgil, or he's having tuna fish, follow Ryan and Denise... There's a scene at the pancake house where he's sitting out there in the car, mm-hmm. and he wonders what are they doing. <laughs> they're meeting these people, and they're going in this building, which I think most of us would think they're meeting for pancakes at the pancake house. But evidently, these guys are from such a different demi monde, where sort of some of these sort of these simple American interactions are are alien to them. Yeah, and so I think this that's, is the different.
2: Yeah. This is maybe the one of the. Okay, we're, I'm going to go back and pick on Elroy. But Virgil Royal and Tuna Fish sitting out in the car and getting ready to scheme, game out a, a crime, they're funny. Right. I mean, they're funny, the two of them. Yeah. The, the back and forth. They give each other, they kind of, you know, Tunafish says something, and Virgil, Virgil's dialogue is so, it's so, <laughs> he, he omits words, it's very sharp, and I don't know, it's just, it's, it's yep. amusing. Yeah.
1: But part of that, I think, is this idea that they seem to belong to a world outside the mundane, you know, bourgeois world. Right. And our our characters, you know, the other ones seem to to sort of have maybe a foot in both worlds. The Dick Speed thing at the end was really disappointing for me, that the cop kind of comes in and rescues the day. It seems like, sadly... Moralistic idea Well you know If they'd just gone to the police In the beginning None of this would have happened kinda. The cops are the good guys Which Seems rather uninteresting To me well, It's It definitely Seems like a stretch To me That Dick Speed Kind of goes along With Ryan Kind of lets Ryan Do what he wants to do Right Deuces machina Isn't it in a way Like The, the cops Cops bail him out In the end Kind of uh. Uh. I yeah. wasn't sure about that part either. But again, I think I think it's but the, the that cops, moral idea that right. there is this good America, and right. these 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 two hoodlums belong to the bad one. And right. Perez and keep keep note of the fact that these guys are all kind of ethnic, right. the black guy and Perez has sure what his bit, you know sort of Louisiana background. So there's there's this sort of times I felt a little uncomfortable with racial angle that. Uh, you know, this it sort of shows up in this book the, too. It casts the demi monde as being a, yeah, a black it, it and brown does, world.
0: Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it's more subtle in this one. You know, in because Leonard doesn't actually, as a, as a narrator, doesn't throw epitaphs out there, right. but the characters do. Which, yeah, yeah. but then again, you know, the fact that you know, the, probably you could probably make a good case that that Elmer is exhibiting a, a very, like I said, a subtle kind of racism by simply. Why is it that the black characters are why does he play them as as amusing as entertaining as comic relief is this is this some kind of subtle reference to step and fetch it to the, to them being entertaining because that's what the role of the black character is supposed to do in a book
1: well not right. even necessarily that just being the other
0: right i mean you know can't they r- be r- can't they be entertaining and funny without being
1: yeah i mean you know, and who knows if somebody were to Just tackle this today. Maybe, you know, Ryan would have a it's just Virgil Royal if he's be black or have a black friend or something. But it's it's just there is this sort of dividing line between
2: it's just every time Virgil opens his mouth, he steals the show.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, he can't help it. He's just that good. (laughs) Well, but a lot of the old the 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 black face and and those racist things probably really were funny and talented, but it was still a racist Thing to to make it funny because it is the other. Well, These black yeah. guys can be funny in a way that the white characters can't because they're us, right? And right. the black guys per- are not us. Perez and Gidri, Gidri, yeah. That's it. You
2: Gidry. The scenes with just those two are intriguing because you're getting the the interplay between those two, and you're getting Perez as the sort of the master strategist, right? But they're not. I didn't. I don't think I found those two to be funny. Virgil and tuna fish are funny.
0: Yeah, they just. I agree. I mean, yeah. I'm not. Yeah, I I don't. Yeah, Gidry and and Perez are obsessed with uh, with culinary issues. Yeah, which I think was was meant to be entertaining and and somehow humanizing and, Uh, but kind of stereotypical too. Of yeah, the the Louisiana, you know, Cajun. Yeah. Yeah, but you know. but what? But was it? <laughs> you're, you seem very willing to excuse. You evidently well, really had just, a good time reading the book, so you're willing to excuse. No, I, I had. I did have a good time reading the book. It was much more uh, entertaining was- and a much faster read than 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 Elroy. Because listen, you know, most of the five weeks I spent reading Elroy, and I read Leonard in two days. Yeah. You know, I, Friday night and Saturday, and I was ready to go. I had it, I had this thing finished before Sunday, mm-hmm. and then we put it off. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, cool fine. Right. you know how but no i mean i I've, I've read a couple of one or two other Leonard books, you know when I was in graduate school, and that at least is something so i I guess part of the reason i'm I, I do wonder if there's you know the, the racism, any type of racism there would be subtle and would be almost unacknowledged on the author's part, just simply by virtue of him you know. That that blindness that all white people have towards their own racism and stuff more like that. blind in 1975 than right. now hopefully because <laughs> because one of the things that he does though is that you see this in later books as well is that the black guys aren't always these you know doomed to die comic relief stuff you know and Leonard does do a good job of of making sure that his books are racially diverse in each story it's not this and the minorities are not always you know the bad guys the patsies the comic relief they're they're playing other important roles so there's there's that to it so that's why you know if if the you know the the racial overtones or undertones in in this book they're incidental to um to the thing he's making the effort to be egalitarian but you know there's a there's there's that lack of awareness that just can't be avoided being a a privileged white guy
2: well, it's still a novel of whenever he published it, nineteen seventy-seven, or
0: yeah.
1: it just kind of is. I think you're giving him too much credit, but I don't think that that should necessarily invalidate the book because right. it is a product of its time, right? It I think is. I think the racism is, is there and pretty, pretty, yeah. it's there. inexcusable from our <laughs> perspective. From our perspective, but, yeah. But uh, yeah, in seventies we.
2: Well, it's just this patter, Chapter 21, opens uh Wait, turn right to it. It's a hotel, hotel lobby, lobby, Virgil said. You never seen one before? <laughs> right. Tuna Fish brought his gaze back and looked straight ahead toward the bank of elevators. i never seen this one before. It's
1: the first time I've been here. It's just the patter between those two. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But you know what I said earlier about this, to me, being more of a script, I mean... I I don't know that I mean I would almost as much as I said horrible things about James Elroy to the fact that his agent is now suing me. Um I almost think Elroy's is more of a literary achievement than this because you know it, it just seems to me like this this is I felt like I was reading a novelization of a movie. Right. Yeah. And Jeanette Winterson has this great quote at one point where she said a couple of decades back that most, most novels, most writing published today is, is really uh, printed television. And I, I feel like I've not sure. read other Elmore Leonard, but this to me was like sort of like a printed movie. And that and didn't strike me as being a literary Endeavor in the way that American tabloid very much is, as horrible and disturbing and failing as American tabloid is. There is a, a, a writer here trying to do something with a language, where if anything, Elmer Leonard is trying to make the language disappear into the background so we don't see it, so we can follow these characters and get these cool
0: scenes and these entertaining lines. Why would? Why couldn't that? I don't know that I completely it? agree. Why but couldn't that be a literary achievement to make the language disappear? to to as Gardner would say get the reader into that vivid and continuous dream. I mean we this is That's something kind of where I went with it. Too. I guess
1: I just don't like movies very much <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I Elroy I has a that.
2: much more eccentric style. I'll grant
1: you that, which is interesting. Yeah. And I don't know that Elmore Leonard his plain style is I find it all that interesting. So I, I I think it's I did I I would read it say quickly that too I wouldn't say I was it was painful but I, yeah, I was not necessarily impressed I I don't know where why where the the writer gets a high literary reputation
0: from a book like this well probably because this was like his first or second crime book after the westerns yeah. it's one of the early ones yeah
1: Ryan's a cool character oh
2: and He's interesting okay yeah. there was one other tidbit I should have added at the front yeah. Ooh. The last I checked, and it's been a little while, so the value might have gone down. But the first printing of Unknown Man number 89, if you ever are lucky enough to stumble across one for 50 cents at some garage sale, (laughs) particularly if it just happens to be in good shape, Uh, definitely pick it up, because they used to be worth quite a bit.
1: I have the first Avon printing. Does that count?
2: No, it does not.
1: (laughs) Avon calling.
2: Because apparently Leonard was not enough of a name back then that it had a pretty small print run Uh for the first printing. And it's a book that a lot of crime novel people really liked this one and thought it was one of his kind of the book that got him one of the books that kind of got him going again. So there's a whole uh, sought after quality to that to that book. And so.
0: Right. Okay. Did you see you on know, Wikipedia the, later, the they,
2: later Leonard novel first printings had much better, bigger print runs, and right. so it's not such a thing to have one of those?
1: Alfred Hitchcock wanted to make this into a movie. Oh yeah, it's on the Wikipedia page. I don't, you know, I don't know if it's true, huh. but Wikipedia says it. So it was toward the it was, uh, Hitchcock was going to make one more movie, right? And evidently this was going to be it, and he didn't do it. Huh. But wouldn't that have been something?
0: Yeah. I don't know the thing with. With the cinematic quality, I'd guess it doesn't and sometimes it does bother me because you just find those writers that come up with a novel and you can tell what they are doing is they're just they're just writing the novelization of a movie before the movie's been made saves time that way but then again, one of my personal philosophies has always been that you know we as writers we are, we are competing with television and movies for people's eyeballs for their entertainment desires and a lot of novels that I go and I pick up off the shelf even ones that I eventually like I'm liking them kind of in spite of the problems that I see with it and I'm liking them and part of the reason that I'm able to like them is because I have an English degree and that's my thing is to read I like that so I don't have a problem with it but I noticed that a lot of novels even this one has kind of a um, oh, this one. yeah Leonard okay has it has kind of a a very basic 19th century structure to it. You have the big rolling out and the scene setting part. And, it's, and it is, even though it's very fast paced, it's still paced and set up and, and described much the same way that a 19th century novel would be described. And I often compare 19th century novels to the pace of, of a locomotive. And those are how the stories are, are set up. So you get on a train and at the first page, And then you very slowly at maybe 40, 60 miles an hour, travel through the countryside of this story and everything unfolds for you in a linear fashion. You might get a couple flashbacks. Somebody tells a story or whatever, but then you're right back on the train going through the thing and you get to experience everything in the environment around you. And that's the way these novels are structured, kind of like, and even this one is structured that way. Novels that have been published just this month are kind of structured that way too. But people don't experience story like that anymore. We haven't been, we haven't really experienced story like that in the world. I mean, we've experienced it in our brains because our brains, even before movies would f- would fragment dreams differently because of the way the synapses fire. And this was the, one of the theories that they had why why movies did not frighten people that much, except when they did things where would rush at people or point a gut at them from the screen. People weren't you know running out of the theater screaming about movies was because they knew that they recognized that type of quick jump between things from their dreams. Well, then you get into the late, mid to late 20th century, and then you have, you throw in air travel, you throw in jet travel, and you get into something at the start of your thing, and two hours later, you're somewhere completely different. You might go from a place where you were wearing shorts to where you need a coat. You're going to go from a place that's flat like Kansas to some place that's mountainous. You're going to just going to pop in there. And as, as movies and everything begin to master the jump cut, begin to more mimic um, dream patterns, as we begin to travel without you know, this experience of, of linear evolution, yes, we can still drive and get it there, but the interstate has cut us off from the scenery as well. So all we see is this traffic. Well, people – so people don't experience narrative or time the way they did in the 19th century. And yet we still produce novels out there asking these people that have their whole lives been conditioned to treat stories with jump cuts, with massive jumps, linear jumps from time and space to get on a train and travel slowly through the countryside. (laughs) Yeah. Right? So – there is this this cinematic quality to writing can have a very literary and artistic element to it. It can be done very well and be artistic so i don't often find this criticism of it's very cinematic to be a bad thing. ondace's novel The English Patient was very cinematic, but it's not a a screenplay waiting to be made into a movie. That thing would when when um when first wrote the first draft of the script it was like 600 pages it was it would have been like a an 8 hour movie you know and they had to pare it down and weed it down but
2: i'd be curious to see what hitchcock thought he was going to do with ryan because yeah. as much as it is cinematic you do get ryan's moral quandary mm-hmm. there are several scenes when he's in his mind trying to decide what he's going to do and he's not he's making it up as he goes right he can't decide if he wants to stay in with Denise. Should he bail on the whole thing? <laughs> I mean, he's kicking it around in his head. He, yep. He's not quite sure that he wants to mess with Perez
0: because
2: mm-hmm. he he senses that Perez is going to come is isn't going to back down easily. Right. And he, I mean, so I wonder what Hitchcock would have done with that because to me that's one of the one of the things in the book that are pretty interesting. The gray area with Ryan mm-hmm. and just where he's what he's where he's going as a character and what he's what he's experiencing and thinking about. Right.
1: Yeah, you'd have to find a way to bring that out. You would. Dialogue, I suppose. Sounded good. Um, the only other thing I had, did you notice that we had another one of those scenes where a character uh, makes fun of, offers a rather lengthy critique of uh, middle-class <laughs> bourgeois. So did you notice that? <laughs> <laughs> if you go back to Elroy, remember we, we talked about in, in, in uh, the Long Goodbye as much as he's uh, uh, ragging on LA. Mm-hmm. There's this yeah. point. you mean you said Elroy oh, you God, mean Chandler yeah. Sorry. It's okay. Go back to Chandler. You, you, you have that scene. remember we talked about where he takes a shot at the Midwest, right. you know, going back and working at the hardware store. And, right. and then in Williford, there was a similar scene where the guy's you know, waiting at a, at a stoplight yeah. and he sees the guy crossing.
2: Well, and he even bags on Americans and saying we'll eat anything. That
1: has bread and lettuce between it or something. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it fits. It fits really well with with uh, with Marlowe putting that out, and it probably fits well with Williford's character too. But it was actually Denise. It's it's a situation where I think uh, Ryan is trying to talk to her, and we go sort of inside her head, and she has this imagination of what her life would be back. Like if she lived back home and married somebody and had the 2.5 oh, children. Oh, yeah, the whole criticism you know?
0: of her mother and everything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And,
1: and it's, so, again, I think that's really it really reveals this tension in hard-boiled fiction where for the most part we draw this line that, that mainstream uh, life is moral and these moral crooks are, are bad. Boring. Yeah, but, but we're interested in the crooks. Right. And, and that seems to bubble up without, and you know, I'm, I'm sure Leonard didn't sit down and think, well, I'll just, you know, let this commentary come through. I think that seems to bubble up in a lot of these mm-hmm. narratives that the author sort of coming to terms with the idea that that, you know, when you really sit down and think about it, these crooks running around is a, it's far more interesting than, uh, you know, the normal nine to five life. Right. Was
0: there anything like that in Elroy? There's a lot of lot of stuff in Elroy. I don't remember. I mean, but did um, did anybody in Elroy? I don't remember anybody in Elroy. No one, no one in American
2: tabloid is even trying to be somewhat normal,
0: right. <laughs> or <laughs> right,
2: or mainstream American, whatever. Right. And they, they do, have all gone off the rails before the narrative
1: ever yeah. starts. Right, right. I bet we could find something. But they didn't. Make they don't even offer a
0: commentary on it. I
1: mean, did, does anybody? I, it's a different kind of book in a way. But then so was the Williford too. Yeah, I, I don't remember a situation where somebody talks about boring, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack America as being a boring
2: thing. Well, okay, avoided. no, I mean, okay, if we're
1: going back to Williford, his whole
2: the movie that that is a Richard yeah, conceives whole, of yeah, is whole, all about the whole how whole miserable in a way is. is the yeah, whole the whole movie of... that Richard conceives of is how miserable <laughs> the
0: American working man <laughs> right, is. Right. Yeah, that's his whole movie. <laughs> Yeah, it is. That The whole book of Williford is is that sandwich comment from, yeah. from Chandler. Look at <laughs> the
2: poor salesmen that are still over there trying to just Santa do a suit. job in the lot. They've got to wear Santa
0: suits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. A Santa suit showed up in – didn't a Santa suit show up in Elroy? Did somebody have a Santa suit? Somebody in it. one of these two books there, was wearing a Santa are, suit. Was it, what is it? The, one, one of the Kennedy Boston, parties? Right? It was Bondurant oh, yeah. was wearing a, yeah. a Santa suit. At the cab stand, Bondarat was wearing a Santa suit at the cab and you, stand.
1: You connected it to that's good. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that's another tension that tends to come up in in noir fiction is Santa. Yeah, there's I a sort so. of an obsession on with Santa that comes up again and again. Because think about it. He's sort of the original noir hero. He sneaks down <laughs> <out> the chimney <laughs> in the middle of the night. This guy in a weird suit. Leaves a little deposit. Know. He's dressed up like Virgil Royal. He sneaks down the...
0: <laughs> Something weird's going on there with Santa, I'm telling you. That may be the case. Oh, Santa. <laughs> yeah. All right. That was, oh, good, that was a good one, guys. Any, any last Any last words? I think we got there. Uh, excellent, excellent. Well, next time it's going to be uh, um, pension, pension, and paid. Brodigan. Inherent Richard vice Brodigan. with pension
2: and Richard Brodigan's
0: uh, dreaming of dreaming Babylon. of Babylon. Right on. All right, guys. Thanks.